0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. A couple more weeks of announcing other people who are going to be at Retro World Expo in Hartford, Connecticut last week of August. And this week's announcement is Epos Vox. That's right. The stream professor himself is going to be hanging out, wandering around, and hopefully meeting a bunch of you as well. So if you want to come and hang out, there's going to be a ton of us. So... Definitely look for anybody you could find. We're all going to be hanging out in kind of the same section of the expo for a while. Of course, wandering around, checking out all of the awesome different vendors and stuff going on. But really hope to see you all there. But let's jump in and see what's been going on for the past week. First up, a few English translation patches were released for the games Shin Megami Tenzi for the PlayStation 1 and Persona 2 Eternal Punishment for PSP, and both of those patches are available to download right in Donald's post, but it's kind of an interesting thing because these games have had ports with English translations before, but not up to par for your average modern English translation, so as usual, the homebrew community stepped up and took it upon themselves to do a proper translation. Donald spelled it out all really nicely in this post, so if you're interested in either of those games or just a cool story about different ports with different types of translations, I would absolutely give this one a read. Um, there's, I guess there was also some behind-the-scenes stuff with it, but I think the most important thing is that we all just as always celebrate anybody who takes the time to do these translations it takes forever it's obviously very hard otherwise there wouldn't be a bunch of different versions of this game already translated in the past that aren't as good so i'm just very thankful to anybody who steps up and does that but uh, more info please check out donald's posts and uh really cool that we have more translations and better translations of these games A couple of weeks ago, Artemio had just released another giant update to the 240p test suite for the Dreamcast, adding some very cool things like standalone VMU software, light gun tests, which is really cool. Anybody that watched that stream with Steve and I a while back knows that we really could've used that then. So uh, it's just so many different cool additions. And very, very good news this is the version that's going to be on the physical release that Video Games New York is selling. All of those links are, of course, right here if you need it. Um, if you're listening audio only, the physical release is retroRGB.link forward slash DC 240p test suite disc. <laughs> it's not exactly the easiest to remember, but it's also. Kind of makes sense. Um, But I'm always just so appreciative to any additions to the 240p test suite because that has been the game that I have played the most in the past 10 years. Probably more than every other thing that I've ever booted on a retro console combined. It's just such an amazing tool that allows so many of us to test every aspect of your console, your display. And speaking of that, there are even some things added now that allows for better calibration of your monitors. If you're using this to calibrate CRT monitors, I believe Dan's going to follow up with a post explaining what that is mostly so I don't screw it up and get it all wrong. So thank you, Dan. Um, but that post will be coming some, at some point in the future. You could just download this and use it right now, and of course, if you'd like to support the team, you could, you could tip when you're downloading it, you could support on Patreon, there, or just buy the physical version, or all of the above if you'd like, uh, but this is pretty essential software for anybody who does any kind of testing in the retro world, and this one specifically, obviously, for the Dreamcast, so I think it's a pretty big deal. So, Thanks to Artemio and everybody else who contributes. And also, this post sat in drafts for like two weeks because I just forgot to hit post. So very, very sorry that I missed this one. Uh, But at least it's out here now. So feel free to just download and check it out yourself. Now it's time for this week's JLC PCB section, and we're going to jump in right where we left off from last week. You're designing yourself a PCB in a project that you want to have assembled, and you want to make sure to do the design with assembly in mind, and of course the part shortage in mind. So where we left off was that there was one little LED lag testing board that we had to panelize, to make it easier to go through the assembly process, and we decided to panelize it ourselves rather than let JLCPCB do it. So here we go, let's continue. Okay, starting us off right where we left off from last week, we have the panelized file with a bunch of different PCBs being made right on that one. We could have just had JLCPCB do the panelization for us, but we wanted full control of everything. Now we're adding it to the assembly, and I'm only selecting two, because don't forget, there's going to be four by seven of these on each panel, so I no longer need to make a larger amount in order for that to work. Then we just have to upload the bill of materials and pick and place file as usual, and then label your project. And now we're back at the same screen that we were with the last assembly order. And because we're in the middle of a part shortage, you'll notice that there are two missing components. So I have the original components queued up here. One of them is a 3.2 volt LED that is 5 millimeters. So we should just be able to search for that. So go to LED, 5 millimeter, 3.2 volt, and we'll search and see what comes up. And you're going to want to check both the pictures to make sure that it's the general idea of what you'd want, as well as the stock. Because you're going to want to make sure there's more than enough stock to make it, or, of course, in case somebody else's order comes in at the same time. So we have a 3.2-volt LED that looks the same. We just want to go to the data sheet and verify all of the other components on it. So max 3.6 volts, typical 3.2. That's exactly what we just confirmed on the other one. And let's just try to double check that it is a five millimeter spacing, which it does appear to be. So that's it. We got the LED just by hitting select. And now we go to the transistor. So same thing. I have that one queued up here. And we can see that it is a bipolar transistor, 40 volt, 200 milliamp. So we could just go in here and search bipolar transistor, 40 volt, 200 milliamp. And we see a few here. Of course, once again, you want to double check the stock. This one looks okay. So 40 volt, 200 milliamp. The package size is SOT233. So, we can just scroll back down and we see that is the same package size as the original one. So, we could just simply add this to the order as well. And now we have the entire quantities of all four components ready to go. And we will be at the part now where we get to decide if this is the exact way we want to have these made. And interestingly enough, I don't think this is the right choice. So swing back again next week for what should be the final part of this as I describe exactly what might need to be changed. I ended up releasing that HDMI device shootout video where I talk about matrix switches, splitters, and audio extractors that I've been testing, basically a compilation of the stuff that I've been talking about here on the weeklies. And I took all of your feedback to heart. So thank you to anybody who commented on any of that stuff. Um, So this video basically you just watch it from start to finish and the things that I teach in the beginning apply to the things at the end. So the first section is like nine minutes and it's seven and five and the last section is like 30 seconds long because you've already learned everything you need to know. Now it's just, yeah, this one's only a switch, only does this done. So I think going forward in the future, what I'm going to do is make a video similar to this, but also shoot it in a way where I could break it out to individuals and then just copy and paste the explanation sections. So that way I could do things like release this video on YouTube the same way, basically, that you would have seen it here to make everybody who's used to watching videos on this channel comfortable with the same format that I've been doing. But I could also, within a very reasonable amount of time, cut it up and edit it to videos that I could put on Amazon next to these products. Because anybody that's ever tried to check out Amazon Reviews knows why we could probably use a slight step up for most of them. Uh, and I, I do think it would be a help, and I think it might promote the uh, the channel, of course. I did check out the two videos that I had posted up there already, and they have, like, four views on them. So I don't think I'm going to be expanding the uh, my audience through Amazon making these videos. But I, I do think it's a good idea to have this stuff out there to help. So I might just very quickly... You know off the cuff, reshoot the individual sections and re-upload them just to Amazon. but I think for YouTube, I like this format and I also enjoyed doing it the way I did where every week or a couple of weeks I would review another set of HDMI devices and but I, I actually use all of these on a regular basis. sometimes it's tools in a toolbox sometimes it's things that are connected 24/7 like to that setup to help with weird edit issues. So I like doing that because the main reviews are all legit, but by the time I swing around to the shootout, I have even more knowledge, and I think I could sum it all up pretty easily. So I think that's going to be what I do going forward for kind of more of these generic devices. And thanks to all of you, I have learned that the HDMI 2.2, 2.1, the the latest with uh, VRR and 120Hz the cheaper switches and audio extractors are starting to be released for those. So hopefully I'll be able to swing back around maybe the end of the year or something and do a follow up on this which will basically be the exact same thing, but for the next step of devices, which I think is really important because now Mr. Supports VRR, all of the new consoles do, Um, 120Hz is also going to be very important, especially anybody who's been doing fighting games and has been following the scene and how much latency could be reduced with that. So, definitely a cool time for cheap devices, but I still recommend all of these, except the one I didn't. (laughs) There was one in there I used as an example, but I didn't like it, but uh, all of the other ones in there I strongly recommend because unless you need those or unless you you know you don't have the ability to separate inputs one with VR 120 one with 4k60 or below um, I really think these are awesome devices so please check them out if you're interested and keep the feedback coming I listen to all of it and uh, I really appreciate it. Stone Age Gamer is now selling the Philips CDI Bluetooth controller adapter that I mentioned a few months ago. This is the one based off of BluePad32 and also combined with TW Burns controller library, so it could support a whole bunch of different controllers. I have the list here in the post, but please uh, check the main BluePad32 site for updates. But it's got a ton covered, you know, the Nintendo Switch and Wii controllers, Wii U, the PlayStation 3, 4, and 5 controllers, Xbox controllers, I mean, the list is very long, so you should be able to have most Bluetooth controllers connect to this one. Unfortunately, there's still no Bluetooth mouse support, which I think would be really great because games like Thunder in Paradise that I actually really enjoyed really benefit from mouse support. So hopefully that'll come in the future. But this is great for people that just like ordering from stores local to them. And I don't mean any disrespect to the team selling it. I pre-ordered mine. It showed up on time. It showed up in good condition. So it just, I think... hopefully most people know what i mean by that you know if you you hear of a new pre-order from a new company there's been mostly good things in retro with that with some nightmare stories so it's kind of cool to just go okay you know a store that i buy from all the time has it let me just buy it from them directly so once again no disrespect to the team they did great but it's nice to have more options and also i'm a a very strong believer and Stick to what you're good at or what you really enjoy. And most developers don't really enjoy packaging, shipping, uh, you know, dealing with tracking numbers and all of that stuff. Stick to developing the cool stuff that you make and let people who are experts in that stuff handle the other side. So, um, either way, I have links to all of the stores in here if you want to buy them. The original, uh, Stone Age Gamer. Um, and I will also be doing a CDI live stream soon where I basically start from scratch. So I take a CDI that I have. It's actually a friend of mine's that I'm borrowing just to do something cool like this, plug in the Bluetooth adapter, figure out how to pair it. I I really like doing those streams. I know it drives some people crazy because they're like, you know, why are you doing this now? Why are you doing setup? You know, but I'd like doing it in real time, because it shows other people what they might expect. Or, even better, you could learn from my mistakes and just skip to the end and do it right away. So I'll be doing everything. I'll be pairing the controller, be playing a new homebrew game that was just released that's still sealed, and I'm very excited to try. Be trying it on a very unique platform, all live on stream. So I'll try to do that within a week or so. Um, but... Back to the point of this. If you want the Bluetooth controller adapter for CDI, check out the link. It's uh if you're listening audio only, RetroRGB.link forward slash CDI Bluetooth sag S A G for Stone Age Gamer. Mike Chi just added another very cool option to the RetroTink 5X, but I want to make sure that everybody understands what this is for. Because, you know, as usual, people are kind of half scrolling on the internet, saw this, and some people misunderstood the purpose. So Just to start from the beginning quickly, when you use scan lines or CRT filters on your TV, it darkens the image because, of course, you're covering a bunch of the light that was coming out of it with a black overlay. On top of that, if you use black frame insertion, so you take a TV that is normally uh, native 120 hertz, you're sending it a 60 hertz signal, you add BFI, that means it sends all 60 frames per second, but every other frame is a complete blackout of the screen, which really helps with motion blur. And it creates a really cool look, but that darkens the screen as well. So if you're playing with those amazing new PVM and BVM CRT filters, which are are still my favorite, um, then especially if you're going to play it with BFI, it's much darker and you're going to turn up brightness on your TV and it might not look exactly the way you wanted. So, in testing for Mike's upcoming products, Mike figured out how to add the command that tells your TV to turn into HDR mode, if your TV is HDR compatible, of course. Now, if you aren't using the scanline filters, or if you're not using BFI, if you're just sending a direct image to it, it's not going to look right. It's going to look blown out. The colors are going to be way off. And that's why I wanted to start this section with the explanation because I didn't want people to just run in, turn on HDR and be like, this sucks. This is an HDR because it's not regenerating the image in HDR. It's just telling your TV to pump up the brightness modes to expect an HDR signal. But by doing that, you add brightness so that if you have the scanline filters on, you don't really need to mess with your TV settings that much. Now it does mess with the colors a little bit. So if you have an eagle eye for that stuff, you probably still are gonna wanna change things around a bit. But for your average person playing, just turning this on kinda gives it the CRT bloom feel that you might have with an original CRT. And especially with BFI mode, because now you have that double darkness of scan lines and BFI, you have this coming through it's really close to a CRT, like impressively close. Um, John Linneman from Digital Foundry was able to test it with BFI. So, of course, I just stole his tweet and uh, posted it right here. But it's it's very, very interesting feature and not something that I would have thought of. So very, very cool that you get to try this out. Once again, though, if you don't use scanline filters or BFI, this probably isn't for you. But I think if you do, or if you were on the fence about doing it, try all of it together now, give it a shot, and see what happens. But very, very awesome that Mike is able to add stuff as he learns for newer products back to the other ones. I always praise any developer that takes the time to do that. And Mike's kind of always done that. He maxed out the 2X Pro and 2X Mini in, in fact, added features to all of those and the M, in fact, that were thought to be completely impossible at launch day. And while it's a completely different set of chips and software than the RetroTank 5X or anything coming coming after this, the old ones certainly weren't abandoned. I would say those were completed because they started out as perfectly good working products and then Mike filled them with every feature that that chipset could possibly handle and then, then moved on to the rest. So I just am so appreciative of that and I really think it's awesome that we get to have this device that we bought a while back that just keeps feeling new all the time. So thank you to all developers who take the time to do that. And holy crap, I can't wait to see what Mike comes out with next. Stika just released a video about some unofficial SNK fighting games for the Game Boy Color. It was a very awesome video. I don't want to take away from it, so I'm not going to try to spoil too much, but the basis of the video is that a company reverse-engineered the official SNK fighting engine for an original Game Boy Color game, and used that to make their own ports of different types of SNK fighting games for the Game Boy Color. Completely unlicensed, you know, bootlegs, whatever you want to call them, but they play pretty nice and pretty quick as well. So now, just in 2022, those games were found and dumped and made available for the first time worldwide, not just in the region that they originally sold the bootlegs in. So you basically get to try some kind of new SNK fighting games for the Game Boy Color now in 2022. So, very neat to see. The games looked interesting and fun, and of course, you know, it's Game Boy Color. It's not going to be a, you know, a full 60 frame per second arcade CPS2 Neo Geo style experience, but it looked pretty smooth and pretty fun, and certainly something that I would have loved to play as a kid. So, Definitely give this one a watch if you're even if you're not into fighting games, the story behind it's really cool. So, thanks to Stika as usual for bringing us this weird and awesome content. And I gotta get around to trying some of these games at some point because it does look pretty neat. Steve from Retrotech just posted a video of his talk that he did at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston in May of this year that goes through the complete history of the CRT display, starting from sealed glass vacuum tubes to the TVs that we saw all the way up until the late 2000s. And this stuff's always kind of fascinating. And as with everything else, internet lore and, and myths and stuff, a lot of it, a lot of the stuff that I had heard over the years wasn't quite true. So it was very interesting to hear Steve give a talk about it. Um, I, I think this is awesome. And while there are visual cues, you could also listen uh, if you'd want, like podcast style. But I think some of the visual cues are kind of important in this. So you know, maybe maybe keep it up so you could glance over. But uh, always, I always appreciate a good history lesson on this stuff and think it was very cool to hear Steve do the talk on it, so definitely give it a watch if you're interested. Tito from Macho Nacho Productions just posted an awesome video about upgrading the RAM on the 1.6 edition of the Xbox, so this is going to require a quick little explanation here. Basically, original Xboxes can have the RAM upgraded to 128 megabytes in order to allow for some cool homebrew things, as well as the ability to play arcade games that were based off of the same platform, but the arcade platforms had the extra memory that was required. And that in itself is nothing new. However, Modern Prehistoric Man has figured out how to do that on the 1.6 version of the Xbox, which was previously thought that that couldn't be done. So Tito's video focuses on that revision, And how to get the RAM installed on it as well as showing some examples of what you might want to use it for. So absolutely awesome video and I do love the weird niche use case things just like last week's video of getting the Wii Mini up and running with uh, more uh, more features and adding Wi-Fi. You know you could just go and get a different revision Xbox but why not just use the one you have and do the different method. So awesome video and on a personal note I've never tried the arcade games that would work on the 128 meg upgrade. So I definitely want to look into that and and see what I could do. Cause I think there's at least one light gun game, which I always a big fan of. And I think it would be a lot of fun. So uh, thanks to Tito. And of course, thanks to prehistoric man. And if you're interested, definitely check that video out. Scanline City has just opened up orders on the Moss Classic Arcade Stick. These are going to be case only at the moment and build to order, so not quite a pre-order because all of the parts are there, but because they're kind of more on the custom side of things, as you place your order, then they're going to be built. And I believe fully completed versions of these will be available to order and to to configure yourself at some point in the future. They did an awesome announcement video that explains absolutely everything, so if you're interested in these, definitely check that out. A very quick summarized version, Moss arcade sticks were originated in the 90s, back when there weren't really great at-home arcade stick options. And they were designed to have the same look and feel of U.S. stand-up arcades with the same style buttons and controller stick. And those were made for a pretty long time and kind of known as good quality sticks. And then unfortunately, the creator died tragically and then no one really knew what was going to happen but jonathan from scanline city got in touch with the family and was able to be an official licensed creator of these now and in fact portions of the sale of each of these will go to the family So it's kind of awesome because it's a throwback both to that style arcade and to the awesome Moss Arcade Sticks. Jonathan's also looking to try and tweak and improve them in any little way possible just to try to add something more to it. And there are two styles to build. The Classic is built to accommodate US-style buttons and sticks, and the MAS Neo is built to accommodate the Japanese-style buttons. So definitely check out the announcement if you're interested in these. Um, they're not cheap, but anything really good quality isn't. You know, If you want a good arcade stick, you can just pick up one from Amazon, got it, swap out the buttons, put your own controller board in it, but at the end of the day... It's really what you, what experience you're looking for and the style you're looking for. So definitely check this out if you're interested. And at the very least, I'd recommend checking out the not very long announcement video. So that will kind of summarize everything much better than I did here. <laughs> Vanessa just posted a written interview with the creator behind the Super MIDI Pack, which is a device that allows you to c- plug a cartridge into your Super Nintendo and essentially turn it into a MIDI device for music creation. The creator Ryan Hunter talked about things like possibly not doing a pre-order anymore just for the next batch having them made and ready to purchase as well as some of the delays that went into it some of the updates that might be coming to the software for it as well as the discord server and community so if you were interested in purchasing one of these or you did and you wanted to hear more about the creator um, I would or more from the creator I would definitely check out Vanessa's interview I haven't had a chance to use one but I've checked out the videos of it in action and it looks really awesome so even if you care just a little bit about about creating music and unique in different ways with video game consoles I would check out Vanessa's post and the video embedded in there now it's time for this week's mr. news care of Lou from Lou's retro source I listened to all of your feedback and I'm gonna try a combination of both styles here and see what works but basically keep the feedback coming because I'm definitely listening First up, their PlayStation Core has gotten a new official release, so just run your favorite update script, and it has all of the improvements and bug fixes that have been worked on behind the scenes. As a side note, if you really are interested in a lot of what goes into these from a programming aspect, definitely check out all of Robert, uh, FPGA, Asim Spass. I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but I'm getting close, um, check out their Patreon posts, because Robert goes through and, and kind of details Everything that he finds in these, which I don't think is necessary if you're an FPGA developer with a Patreon, just keep doing what you do. But I do really love the fact that if somebody else is programming for these platforms, you could kind of go in, see what Robert's been going through and understand what you're going to be running into moving forward. There is no official core release for the Super Hang-On and OutRun games from Hotego. There's been a bunch of issues they run into. However, you can download OutRun and boot it to a sound test menu. So I think he jokingly called it the OutRun Jukebox core at the moment. Um, But they're still moving forward, and I'm very much looking forward to both of those. Worker Waka has released a beta core for R-Type. I downloaded it, I got ready to test it, and then craziness happened at the house, so I haven't had a chance to do it yet. But if you would like, uh, you could just download it and give it a shot yourself right now. So shout out to Worker Waka. Thank you for doing that. There's also a core that was released that I guess uh, snuck under the radar for Lou. But uh, Developer Pramod has been building a core for, race, for rising arcade games. I'm probably saying that wrong. So, Sorcerer Striker, Kingdom Grand Prix, Battle Gorega, Bat Rider, and Battle ba- Battle Becred. I'm getting all those wrong. So definitely check out uh, those if you're interested in those games. And there's been a bunch of miscellaneous fixes. Like uh, Alpha Mission had Snack DB15 support added, which is uh, allows you to just have you know zero latency way to use a controller. On a side note, I do really think those Daemon Byte adapters, mix one millisecond adapters, are probably the same for a game like that Uh, but it's good that it's out there there's also video switching modes um that were added and some framework in vrr added or framework for the vrr stuff was added by birdie bro as well so if you want any more info on this, please check out Lou's video and make sure to subscribe to his channel. Without Lou, all of this stuff would be have to be pieced together and we're able to just hear it all in one spot thanks to him. So thanks to you, thanks Lou and thanks to, of course, all of the Mr. Developers that put their time into all of this stuff. I think it's absolutely awesome. Todd from RetroFrog has just released a case for the Turbo EverDrive, which I think is absolutely awesome. I love the Turbo EverDrive, but I end up keeping it in the box that Cricks shipped it in, which, you know, cardboard does a good job, but that's going to wear out over time. And there really isn't, up until this point, been a good case to store it in. So if you swap back and forth between Hue cards and your EverDrive, like most of us probably do it's awesome to have a protective case for it. And Todd did it kind of in the same style that he did the Neo Geo memory card case, in that it's a two-piece foldable design with magnets that kind of sticks it closed when it's shut, keeps it protected, keeps dust out of it. So if you're interested in any of those, uh, it fits both the version two and 2.5 of the EverDrive. Looks very cool, comes in four different colors, uh, orange and black, red and, red and white, Uh, blue and gray and orange and gray, and it's 15 bucks. So if you're a Turbo EverDrive user that swaps it around, um, I think this one's probably going to be a must buy for you because I I do think having protective cases is good for, for keeping your equipment in as best shape as possible. So thanks very much, Todd, and I'll probably be picking one of those up later today. I saved this one for last because I wanted to add my thoughts at the end, but before I get rambling, let's just get the facts out first, and then I'll let you all know when it's time to drop off if you don't care about the rest. But, developer Ultra fp 64 Ultra has just begun porting Vertex NeoGeo MrCore over to the Analog Pockets OpenFPGA. And while it's still in alpha form and still has a pretty long way to go, I thought it was awesome that they jumped right into it and grabbed one of the the craziest cores available and started getting it working. A couple of games are playable, with some glitches, most completely glitch out, but it seems doable. So while I would never want to put pressure on any developer to, to rush it through, you know, it'll be done when it's done, but it seems plausible that this will be finished, which is pretty awesome. Uh, please remember to support all of your favorite FPGA developers if you're in a position to, because without this, we wouldn't be able to play them on anything. And other than that, uh, the Open FPGA is a new firmware for the analog pocket that allows developers to load their own cores and basically use the device as their own dev device and on the user side of things all we have to do is unzip a file to the root of the sd card add your bios files in your rom and now you can just start using it so it's basically it's almost as easy as the mister you don't have an update script yet but it's certainly not hard to get started so if that's all you cared about, you could drop on off. Uh, I do have some thoughts on the analog pocket and uh, thoughts on OpenFPGA that are really 99% positive. Um, but if you don't really care about that or if you want you know, better opinions, check out Digital Foundry and My Life in Gaming's video on the pocket. Um, but And also I did a live stream showing all this stuff where you could just watch that. But here's basically the summary of the live stream. I had a friend ask me to pick up the pocket the day it was released. So I logged on right at 10 a.m. I think it was 10 a.m. And I, I bought it. I got my order in on the first batch. And it arrived a couple months ago. And I just never opened it. Almost a year ago now, whenever the first batch shipped out, I kept saying I want to do a live stream. I want, you know, I want to... I want to check it out myself and my friend was very patient and said just hold on to it as long as you need and with OpenFPGA being released I figured this was the perfect time so I did a live unboxing where I showed all of the different accessories my friend purchased. Um, I added the screen protector which is always very nerve-wracking for me and then of course I uploaded the firmware and just kind of started using it. And once again, there's a bunch of fumbling, but I, I like that. I like showing people what your experience might actually be like. Um, and of course, helping, you know, skip to the end. You could learn, learn from some of the stuff that I learned from. My thoughts on the Pocket are that it absolutely lives up to the hype my personal opinion, you know, you you could disagree, but I thought the screen was beautiful. I thought it was very comfortable. It was a little on the heavier side, but I didn't mind that at all. Certainly not much heavier than an original DMG with four AA batteries in it. Um, You know, the performance is just as good as I expected. The only downsides that I found is compatibility with USB controllers on the dock was pretty bad and pretty disappointing. I went through four or five of them before I found one that worked. And these are controllers that work on Mr. Raspberry Pi, Windows, Mac. I mean, this isn't some rare, weird controller. It's a standard USB controller. So I do hope that they kind of update that. Um, the micro SD card slot is impossible to get out. And when you do, if you like use it, like I used a screwdriver or a plastic thing to push it in, if it slips, your micro SD card will go shooting across the room. So... Not really a complaint, more like a warning. Um, I think that's why a lot of companies have that little indentation so you could use your finger. They had kind of flat on the sides. Uh, very obviously copying the design of Apple. All of the boxes looked like the basic, basically like Apple box clones, which, you know, it's not the same product. So I'm, I'm not calling Analog a clone company. I'm just saying it was very heavily influenced, obviously, by that. Um, and OpenFPGA itself, I think there, like I said in the live stream, there is a million ways for that to go right and only a few ways for that to go wrong. And it's all on Chris Tabor's shoulders on how he wants to do it. If they basically just leave everybody alone, now there's another development platform that people could share their cores on. Mr. Analog Pocket, OpenFPGA, maybe future devices, maybe the Duo, if it's ever released, it's not a dig on them, that's the part shortage. Um, Maybe that would support OpenFPGA and... I think options are definitely a good thing, but you still are at the mercy of another company. And I think QWERTY Moto teased out like, you know, oh, well we shouldn't buy the D10 because we're just supporting uh, Terasic, Terasic. I still don't know how to pronounce that. And while that was funny and it made me laugh, it, it is a different thing. Terasek is a company that makes dev devices that, in a good way, couldn't give a shit about any one or the other. Their their job is to make the dev devices, they make those kits, that's it. So if they stop making them someday, we, we all have to find a different platform, and that's cool. But Analog does have control over this, and it's their platform that's focused on gaming. So at any moment, they could take their platform and charge you to use the firmware, charge you for cores, which I also, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I'm just saying that this is what you got to worry about when you have a company in control of it like this. Now, Chris Tabor in a couple of interviews has said that it's basically going to be no restrictions, completely open, do what you want. We're not sharing our side of things, but you do whatever you want. And, you know, like I just said, there's a million ways this could go right. There's only one or two that could go wrong, and it doesn't seem like that's their intent at all. So I made the point online, and I'll make the point again here. As long as you're comfortable porting something over, knowing that it could be used to just make analog a bunch of money, and then they could do whatever they want with it afterwards, then that's cool. I don't think things are going to go wrong. I think that would be a PR disaster. And Chris is really, really awesome at the PR side of things. I've always given him so much props for that. I know their PR pisses off a lot of people, but, you know, you got to admit, we're all talking about it, right? So it's definitely a win. I don't, I don't foresee things going wrong, but I love that everybody's calling them out on what could go wrong because for whatever crazy reason there for years analog had this power in the press where nobody said anything anything negative about them, except me, which led everybody to think that I hated analog. I don't, I've always, I've always promoted Kevin's products ever since Kevin joined the team. I consider Kevin a friend. I've never said anything bad about the products. I just had to call out the, the, you know, premium shipping and crap like that because nobody else did. It's the only reason I went hard, which is also on the flip side, why I'm kind of sort of defending them here because everybody else kind of piled on them for the, you know, don't support analog. They're an evil company. Like, I don't, I don't think they're an evil company. Um, I really am right down the middle. I really do see both sides of things. And I just kind of step up when I feel like the scales need to be evened out a little bit. So I, you know, i like the products. I like the platform. I think it's all going to work out nicely. Uh, I already sent it away and mailed it to my friend because With all respect, I am just not somebody that enjoys gaming on handhelds. I like sitting on a couch or a chair with my controller staring at a big TV, which is hilarious because I want the smallest phone possible. Like I would get a Zoolander phone if they made them and a giant ass TV. And that's kind of my thoughts on, on my preference on how to play those things. So overall, I liked it. Thought it was very cool. Thought there was a lot of potential moving forward, um, and I, I think the open FPGA is a really great idea. And it's cool to see developers kind of embracing it. Um, I know there were some people that were they're mad that some developers were considering porting their cores over, but I just don't get that mentality. Is that like, is that like um, PlayStation versus Xbox? You, you want the thing that you bought to feel cooler than the thing somebody else bought? That's kind of like a, it's kind of a shitty way to look at things, isn't it? But I don't know. So uh, basically, mostly positive things to say. Definitely was surprised at the lack of USB controller support, but uh, um, hopefully that'll just get fixed in an update. Uh, Liked everything else about it, and I'm certainly interested to see what comes next from from everybody, from the FPGA developers, what Analog's going to come out with. Uh, I just think there's so much promise and so much cool stuff going on. And regardless of of which platform you prefer to play on, I think we all have to admit, it's a really, really cool time to be a retro gamer. Well, that's it for this week. As always, thank you so much to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, especially people who take their time to provide feedback. That was really awesome. And especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is making the weekly podcasts, all of the behind the scenes research, which takes up most of my time, and all of the other things that we do at Retro RGB are because of you. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.